Good morning, church. I'm uh, Pastor Jonathan Coleman, one of the ministers here at Anderson Hills. I want to welcome those who are watching uh, online. So this morning we'll continue to learn from our sermon series called The Story, which is really God's story from beginning to the end, Genesis to Revelation. And ever since we picked back up with the series, after taking a break during Advent and Christmas, we've been learning about a time period in history when there was a divided kingdom among God's people. Division is never, never good. Last week we learned that in the midst of that division, evil, apostasy, God's prophets, his messengers began to speak for God, a word from him to God's people. And so these prophets reminded, they reminded the people that they were chosen by God to be holy, set apart, and through their faithfulness, if they were faithful, they would experience God's light and they would show that light to the nations around them. This past Sunday we saw how Elijah and Hosea uh, called the people not to rebel against God, not to worship false gods, not to ignore God's commands. And the prophets also told the people that if they continued on the path of disobedience, that they were already on, that God would bring judgment upon them. And so we learned also from the prophet Micah what God required. Most of all from his people was that they would act with justice, show kindness, and to walk humbly with their God. And so today, I want to focus on one prophet, Isaiah. I don't know how familiar you are, you are with uh, Isaiah. I know some old, prof- uh, old Testament professors and scholars, they are smitten with Isaiah. I was thinking this week about uh, this coming Saturday, it's a little commercial, when former Ohio State Buckeye and Dallas Cowboy, Bobby Carpenter, will be speaking at the men's Super Bowl breakfast this coming Saturday, 8.30. Guys, sign up, bring friends. And at that breakfast... We usually have a Q&A session uh, with the speaker, and we've, we've done that in the past, and it's been really cool. And I'm sure there'll be a line of people wanting him to sign footballs, get a picture, a selfie, and maybe an autograph with him. Imagine this, a bunch of biblical characters setting up small tables with two chairs and having, forming, I guess, forming lines to interact and ask them questions, to get to know them better, maybe get a selfie taken, or perhaps having them sign your Bible. Jesus would draw a crowd. He always did. <laughs> and there would be a long line for Moses and Mary and the Apostle Paul. Peter would have folks who loved the fish. However, out of all those characters, I think over in the corner you would have One prophet, alone, twiddling his thumbs, waiting for someone to get in his line. Most likely that would be Isaiah. I hope after this sermon, you change your mind. And you flock over to his line. And you'd sit down with the one who has been called the prince of prophets. The backdrop of Isaiah's ministry, there were serious threats to the southern kingdom by the Assyrians. And the 
and the coming fall of the northern kingdom. And I see, as Isaiah sees the beginning of the end, and his message was a warning to Israel that if they broke the covenant, there would be a cost. And God would use Assyria and eventually Babylon to bring that judgment. They continued in idolatry and even oppressing the poor. And here's why. Let's look at 2 Corinthians 17, 7 through 12. All this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them out of Egypt under the power of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. They worshipped other gods, followed his practices of the nation, and the Lord had driven out before them, as well as the practices that the kings of Israel had introduced. And the Israelites secretly did things against the Lord their God that were not right. From the watchtower to fortified city, they built themselves high places in all their towns. They set up sacred stones, Asherah poles on every high hill under every spreading tree. At the high places, they burned incense as the nations whom the Lord had driven out before them had done. They did wicked. They roused the Lord's anger. They worshiped idols. Though the Lord said, you shall not do this. And so... We see again here that Isaiah warned of God's anger and that Israel would be removed. The only only tribe of Judah would be left. They were in trouble because of their disobedience. In 2 Kings it says, even Judah did not keep the commands of the Lord their God. They followed the practices of Israel that Israel had introduced. And therefore the the Lord had rejected all the people of Israel. He afflicted them and gave them into the hands of the plunderers. Until he thrust him from his presence. During all of the years at Divided Kingdom, there was a total of 38 kings. 38 kings. And out of that number, only five were considered good kings. That means they did what was pleasing to God. All the rest, the vast majority, did what was evil in the Lord's sight. And we have seen that For the past few weeks. Haven't you just seen that redundancy? Corrupt leadership. And when the northern kingdom of Israel fell to the Assyrians. You might think that the southern kingdom of Judah would have sat up and taken notice. You might think that they would learn from their neighbors mistakes. Their behavior. But they did not. And so we find that things are bleak. For both Israel and Judah. This is where we find Isaiah. Backdrop is not good. The red light is on. The engine, this warning of coming judgment. And he's faithful in his writings. We see in his writings, he's not only a prophet, but he's also a poet. He's kind of a hybrid prophet. And in his writing, we get a glimpse of his heart, his worldview around him, and most importantly, God's view. And it's magnificent. When things are bleak in his world, his view of God is immense and abounding. It's a lesson for us. It is. It seems like our world is chaotic. Chaotic mess. Crazy, man. Everything, you you see new news stories pop up and it flabbergasts. I know it does me. And sometimes I say, you know, I thought I've seen and heard it all. And you find, wow, a new thing, new evil has popped up. And it's, it's bad. 
Isaiah has a lot to teach us in these kinds of environments. You see, Isaiah was a prophet who saw God. He saw the future and he foresaw a Savior. And this summary of his ministry, and we, we don't see in that ministry a lot about him as a man. There's not a lot of personal information. We know he had one wife and three sons. And his writings span 66 chapters. And it's one of the longest books in the Bible. His ministry began around 740 B.C. when there was major upheaval. He served under four kings. We think he was martyred under serving under the fifth king, Manasseh. And some believe he was originally a scribe while serving under King Uzziah. And Uzziah was an important king in the history of Israel because he served for 52 years. Can you imagine having a president for 52 years? I didn't hear any groans, I just heard laughter. We know, uh, we know as a good king, he, he basically did what was good in God's sight. His major failure, though, that he was kind of wishy-washy. He wasn't completely sold out and surrendered to God. He wasn't all in. He was trying to keep things stable around him in the midst of that chaos. And one thing he failed to do was to tear down those high places that we hear about, those high places of pagan worship. He was a king that wasn't a boat rocker. He tried to keep that, just, just things right there. And so he didn't lead his people in being faithful to God because of that wishy-washiness. And they continued to break that first commandment. And because Uzziah was faithful in some things, the Lord gave Judah some more time. And God didn't want to punish his people. He was patient. But he wanted them to come to repentance, to turn to him and be saved. But that was not the case. When King Uzziah died, Judea especially they fell into complete disarray. In chapter 6, we see, though, a major change in Isaiah's life. And it comes when Uzziah, his king, that he served for years and years and years, dies. And this takes us to the first reading today from Isaiah. It's chapter 6, verses 1 through 3. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord... High and exalted, seated on the throne. And a train of his robe filled the temple. And above him were a seraphim, each with six wings. And with two wings they covered their faces. And with the others they covered their feet. And with two were flying. And they were calling to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The earth is full of his glory. You see, God calmed Isaiah's fears by not removing the problem, but by entering his life with his presence. And it filled the room that he was in, and it also filled his life. God fills Isaiah's changing world and chaos with his presence. Notice he doesn't remove the change around him. You know, change is always happening. Change is. It will always be there. I'm sure most of us can raise our hands and say, yep, change, change is happening in my life. And it was for Isaiah. And it is for us. We are all going through change. And maybe some of you are, are yelling in the human journey, stop this change. 
I've had enough. That's when God says, I'll meet you in that change. We try to resist it. Yet the wise person who accepts that change is, when it is happening, allows God to walk beside him or her in that change within it. Isaiah sought God in the midst of bleakness of his king, the death of his king, and foreseeing judgment and captivity of his nation. However, we see that God, or Isaiah's view of God, increased in that change. And beloved, Isaiah saw a great God. Isaiah believed that even though Uzziah was not on the throne, God was still on his throne. Even though Uzziah's reign ended, God's reign would never end. And God gave Isaiah a peek at his majesty, and this diminishes Isaiah's fears. Max Lucado writes, if your problems are too big, your view of God has gotten too small. Love that. If your problems are too big, your view of God has gotten too small. The answer is not for God to take away our problems, but to have God magnified in our lives so that our problems seem to diminish because our God is greater than those problems. We all know what it means to magnify. We know what a magnifying glass is. It makes things bigger. You know, it seems like these reading glasses are coming on. My font is getting bigger and bigger in my sermons. And we magnify, increase God in those words, the fonts of our lives. This is what Isaiah claimed and became. His view of God became greater. And when he saw the majesty of God, it thrusted him into his calling as a prophet poet. If you continue reading in that chapter, chapter 6 of Isaiah, in his difficulties and circumstances, he went to the ground and confessed, Woe to me, I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among people with unclean lips. But my eyes have seen my king, the Lord God Almighty. And his testimony goes on, and you can picture it with his mind's eye. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand. He's talking first person. He said, which he had taken tongs from the altar, and when he touched it to my mouth, he said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. And then he says, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send? Who will go for us? And Isaiah says, here I am, Lord. I will go for you. Send me. And we see that purification happen to to Isaiah, and he goes, and he has a message for the impurity that's happening around him in the midst of his circumstances. It's as if Isaiah was pleading, cleanse me, great God. I hear your call. Make me whole for the tasks ahead, and then launch me into the help to help in the dilemma of your people, my people, because I know your promises. I know your greatness. I know you are on the throne. Send me. Your faithfulness is with me. And what if, like Isaiah, our view of God increased when the turbulence of change shakes us? Not only is human beings, earthlings, (laughs) males and females on this earth, but as Americans, 
and as citizens of this region, Isaiah saw a great God. He also saw a great future. In his ministry in the 740s and on, the Babylonians are poised to take over and take the people into captivity. And yet he speaks with them with conviction. But he also speaks to them with compassion. Look at Isaiah 14, 1 through 2. The Lord will have compassion on Jacob. Once again, he will choose Israel and will settle them in their own land. Foreigners will join them and unite with the descendants of Jacob. Nations will take them and bring them to their own place. And Israel will take possession of the nations and make them male and female servants in the Lord's hand. They will make captives of their captors and rule over their oppressors. You see, in that bleakness, Isaiah saw that God is going to keep his promises to Israel. And that he has made a covenant with Israel and he will not forget that covenant. And God remembers or Isaiah remembers that God covenant, and he proclaims it. I remember when I came to one of the pastors here, David, after I became a Christian. I wanted to be rebaptized, and uh, he said, "Jonathan, you know you've been baptized. There was a covenant made by your parents, your godparents, the the church." But most importantly, God. And God never forgot that covenant. You'd be baptized at Corpus Christi Roman Catholic Church on Hamilton Avenue in Forest Park in 1971-ish. Little white robe given to me, a hand-me-down. And God never forgot that covenant. He said, just go knowing that you have renewed your faith in him. Reaffirmed it in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And I remember weeping. In praise. You see, that's what God proclaims to Isaiah. But he also states that, that we are beneficiaries to that covenant. Did you read that in there? Look at that. Foreigners will join. That's us. We are in Christ, Christ Jesus, who has a new covenant. It pours out to the Gentiles. And Isaiah, here's the first whispers of that. Gentiles will be included. We have been grafted into the family of God. Grafted into the true vine. And as God's people, holy and beloved, we can lift our eyes and see a future that is to come. And that God has that future. And look what God showed Isaiah. Isaiah 11, 6 through 9. The wolf will live in the, with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together, a little child will lead them. A cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den. And the young child will put his hand in the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth is filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You see, our future is harmony. Our future is restoration. This is our future, Christian. It is. Nature will be in harmony with humanity. There will be a new heaven and new earth, vice versa. And this is a, 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 a 
glance into the new Eden that comes. And Isaiah sees it. And all creation is filled with the peace of God. And it diminishes all the, the memories, the harm, and everything. And we have the glory of God before us in the future. Just think about it for a moment. The earth is filled with the knowledge of God. And they know this to the deepest depths of their core. Like, I love how it says, like, all water's covering the sea. I think throughout Cincinnati, people are seeing this. It's called Revival. Spiritual renewal, healing, deliverance, removal of stronghold. And they're living that experience in harmony in the fullness of God. And we were made for this. We were designed for Eden. And that's why we seek fulfillment and purpose, something greater. We're wired for that, for paradise. And how do we find it? We find it in Jesus Christ, who says, love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And that's the first before we begin. And the fall led us away from that. You know, the world is bad most of the time. It's going to get better. Because Isaiah not only saw a great God and a great future, but he saw a great Savior. If we could have a face-to-face with Isaiah, if I could... I would ask him to tell me when he first saw Isaiah chapter 53. It is the chapter for us as Christians for prophecy. This is where we see a prophet and a poet intertwined so beautifully. And God gives it upon his brain and his being. And these are the words about our Savior. Let's look at them. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. This is Jesus. Centuries prior to the birth of Christ, eight centuries, he saw a savior. He saw that tender shoot in Bethlehem in the hay. Nothing special about that announcement, the appearance, the splendor of coming into this world, that little infant he was. He was despised, it continues in verse 3, and rejected by mankind. A man suffering, familiar with pain, like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and he was held in low esteem. You see, when Jesus was hanging on the cross, the people couldn't even look upon him. And they, they would spit and hurl insults. They taunted him. And it continues. Surely he took up our pain. He bore our suffering. And yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We are all like sheep had gone astray, and each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid the iniquity of us all on him. He was oppressed, afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter as a sheep before his shearers are silent. He did not open his mouth. And by oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet Who of his generation protested? He was cut off from the land of living for the transgressions of my people. He was punished. 
He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence nor any deceit was in his mouth. You see the precision in this prophecy? It's amazing. It's detailed. He can see it. And I'd love to sit down with him and hear about it. Long before John 3.16 was written on a scroll by Apostle John, long before the nails hammered by a Roman soldier, long before his flesh, body broken, the thorns, the insults, long before the grave was given to him by a rich man, Joseph of Arimathea, he saw a great Savior. And Isaiah knew human sin. He was very familiar with it. He knew national sin. And he knew his own sin. And we all know that sin is deadly. It can kill bodies. It can kill marriages. It can kill a church. It can kill a soul. As one author put it like this, sin steals joy. Sin removes confidence. It brings guilt. Sin quenches God's spirit. Sin brings physical damage. It causes an ache of the soul. In the soul, sin breaks God's heart. Sin opens the door to other sins. Sin produces fear. Sin makes slaves. And ask yourself, is this the price I really want to pay? Is this the price I can afford to pay? Sin took God's only son, crushed his body. Jesus was 33 when he died at Calvary. And think of that, 33, a young man, falsely accused, bitterly uh, reveled, and yet yet guilty of no wrong. A healer, a helper, a lover of children. A liberator of people imprisoned by their own sin and guilt. A man who knew God intimately enough to address him as Abba, Daddy. And yet never lost his concern for the least, last, and the lost. Yet he hangs there on the cross. And it was sin that put him there. Your sin. My sin. The sin around Isaiah in that time and Isaiah's sin. God showed Isaiah in those bleak times that even through the transgressions, although the transgressions of Israel are great, the transgressions of Isaiah's own sin was ginormous. The sin of all humanity, horrific. He can look to that Savior, and we can look to that Savior too. He saw it. He said he bore our transgressions. He took it on himself. And by his wounds, his stripes, we are healed. And there's freedom in the work of the Savior that wipes away the bleakness of our sin, the remorse in which we carry from our sin. And sometimes that remorse can be decades. But he took it upon himself. And this hymn writer understands this. It says, well, wondrous love is this, O my soul, O my soul, that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the dreadful curse for my soul, for my soul. And Isaiah, telescopic, 800-year vision, saw it. He saw a great God. So that his view of God increased, and your view of God can increase by seeing that. It will help your problems diminish. And like Isaiah, you'll look at God and you can magnify God because he desires that 
so that your problems can decrease. And out of this, we can share the good news that's, that's this fire in our bones and give testimony of the great things he has done in our own bleakness. And I hope you will see a future full of renewal, glory, and joy. And that God did everything so that we can experience that harmony and be taken back to Eden. He's been called the second Adam that reverses that curse. And oh, the glory in that. And we have inherited that as Christians. Why? Because of this great Savior, Jesus Christ. Get in line, folks. Get in line with me. Walk over to the corner. Line up. Sit down with Isaiah. Oh, interact with this great prophet. Let us pray. Almighty God, thank you for your prophets who call, your prophets who see, your prophets who have a message for us today. Thank you for your spirit, O oh Lord, that has come upon them. And that they see so that we can see. God, may we line up at the table and see, like Isaiah, your greatness to magnify you. To see your future and be unafraid. And to see our Savior, Jesus Christ. May we testify to his amazing work in and through us and all of God's people say, amen, amen.